Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hi, everybody. Hope you are doing well. We're wrapping up a busy week. Although the smart money says that VCs are taking a break from investing, it certainly seems to us like there is no shortage of startups receiving funding. And of course, it's all AI all the time these days. Every company seems to be sporting an artificial intelligence or machine learning angle. Meta's decision this week to release its Llama large language model to the interwebs may add some meat to these bones in addition to serving Meta's unstated goal of destabilizing the existing behemoths in the space, namely Google, OpenAI, and Microsoft. Startups and other non-FANG tech companies may start using these open-source LLMs and figuring out new ways to deliver chat-GPT-like performance minus all of the weird hallucinatory responses and need for vast computing resources. It's bewildering, I tell you. So bewildering that we don't have any news stories for you tonight. But we do have a fascinating interview with Gary Marcus, an academic, entrepreneur, and author who played a significant role in Senate hearings this week on the future of AI. Let's get to that interview. It's a great one. But first, a word from our sponsor. Now, more than ever, startups are looking for the safest place to put their cash. Mercury offers secure banking through an intuitive product experience that innovates alongside you. Through partner banks and their sweep networks, Mercury customers can access up to $5 million in FDIC insurance, 20 times the per-bank limit. These sweep networks protect your deposits by spreading them across multiple banks, limiting the risk of any single point of failure. And with Mercury Vault, any funds above the FDIC-insured amount can be easily invested in a money market fund predominantly composed of U.S. government-backed securities, providing startups of any size a simple way to manage bank risk and protect their cash. Plus, it's simple to get started. Applying takes just minutes, and many customers are approved and onboarded in less than two hours. Visit Mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances. Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group and Evolve Bank and Trust, members FDIC. On Tuesday of this week, neuroscientist, founder, and author Gary Marcus sat between OpenAI CEO Sam Altman and Christina Montgomery, who is IBM's chief privacy trust officer, as all three testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee for over three hours. The senators were largely focused on Altman because he runs one of the most powerful companies on the planet at the moment and because Altman has repeatedly asked them to regulate his work. Most CEOs, of course, beg Congress to leave their industry alone. Though Marcus has been known in academic circles for some time, his star has been on the rise lately thanks to his newsletter, a podcast, and his relatable unease around the unchecked rise of AI. 
In addition to this week's hearing, for example, he has this month appeared on Bloomberg Television, been featured in the New York Times Sunday Magazine and Wired, and even given a TED Talk. The hearing seemed truly historic in ways. Senator Josh Hawley characterized AI as, quote, one of the most technological innovations in human history, for example, while Senator John Kennedy was so charmed by Altman that he asked Altman to pick his own regulators. If you missed it, here's that exchange, which began with Kennedy asking Altman for some specific advice on how to regulate AI. Here's your shot. Thank you, Senator. Uh, number one, I would form a new agency that licenses any effort above a certain scale of capabilities and could take that license away and ensure compliance with safety standards. Number two, I would create a set of safety standards focused on what you said in your third hypothesis as the dangerous capability evaluations. One example that we've used in the past is looking to see if a model can self-replicate and self-exfiltrate into the wild. We can give your office a long other list of the things that we think are important there, but specific tests that a model has to pass before it can be deployed into the world. And then third, uh, I would require independent audits. So not just from the company or the agency, but experts who can say the model is or isn't in compliance with these stated safety thresholds and these percentages of performance on question X or Y. Can you send me that information? We will do that. Um, Would you be qualified to... uh to, to uh, if we promulgated those rules, to administer those rules? I love my current job. <laughs> cool. Are there people out there that would be qualified? We'd be happy to send you recommendations for people out there, yes. Okay. It was all a little incredible. Because of Marcus's role in the proceedings, we asked him to talk about that experience and see what he knows about what happens next. It was a little early for this kid, so I sound as tired as I felt, but I enjoyed the conversation. Hope you will too. Just so that listeners have a better sense of who you are, I'm sure some of them will have seen you out in the world. Your profile has really risen this year, but you're a NYU professor emeritus of psychology and neuroscience and a repeat entrepreneur. You sold a startup geometric intelligence to Uber in 2016, and you co-founded Robust AI, which helps improve problem solving for collaborative robots in 2019 with famed roboticist Rodney Brooks who, for what it's worth, I interviewed on stage back in 2017. And I I mostly remember this because we were talking at MIT and Brooks was getting sort of a lot of laughs because he was talking then about Elon Musk not really understanding AI and um, saying that he was wrong that AI was an existential threat. I think Rod and I share skepticism about whether current AI is anything like artificial general intelligence. There are several issues you have to take apart. Um, One is, are we close to AGI? And the other is, you know, how dangerous is the current AI we have? I don't think the current AI we have is an existential threat. I doubt that Rod does either, but the current AI is dangerous. And in many ways, I think it's a threat to democracy. That's not a threat to humanity. Like it's not going to annihilate all humans, but it's a pretty serious risk. Sure. Not that long ago, you were publicly debating with Jan LeCun, the um, deep learning scientist who now is Meta's chief AI scientist. And I'm not really sure what the flap was about, but it seemed like it was maybe about the true significance of deep learning neural networks. Can you tell us? Give you a little history there. So LeCun and I have actually debated many things for many years. We had a public moderated debate that David Chalmers, the philosopher, moderated in 2017. I've been trying to get him to have another real debate 
ever since, and he won't do it. He prefers to subtweet me on Twitter and stuff like mm-hmm. that, which I don't think is the most adult way of having conversations. But because he is an important figure, I do respond. We've had a, a lot of debates over the years. I wrote an article in 2018 called Deep Learning, a Critical Appraisal. And Eric Bringhoffson thought it was a pretty interesting paper and said so on Twitter. And Lacoon shot back a few seconds later, it might be interesting, but it's mostly wrong. And what I said in that paper was that deep learning systems have problems with generalization. They're brittle. They require a lot of data. They make a lot of stupid errors. Lacoon never really said what was wrong with it. It just felt like bullying to me to say something's mostly wrong and not go into what you think the arguments are. And we had back and forth about these matters for several years. And it sort of even escalated last year when I wrote a piece called Deep Learning is Hitting a Wall. Lacoon, again, was very critical without really giving substantive arguments. One thing that I think we disagree about now is Lacoon thinks it's fine to use these and that there's no possible harm here, no realistic harm in the world. I think he's extremely wrong about that and, in fact, irresponsible to take that position. There's potential threats to democracy from misinformation that is deliberately produced by bad actors, from accidental misinformation, like the law professor who was accused of sexual harassment, even though he didn't commit it. I think that there are risks that large language models will subtly shape people's political beliefs, their ideas about the world based on training data that the public doesn't even know anything about. And so sort of like social media, but even more insidious, many threats to democracy. And then you you can use these tools to manipulate other people. You can do phishing to get their credentials. You can probably trick them into anything you want. You can scale them massively. And so cyber criminals are going to use these things. There's definitely risks here. And so I, I strenuously disagree with Lacoon and the notion that it's all just fine. You said something interesting at some point on Tuesday about Sam Nutt being very specific when he talks about his worst fear. I think you said, you don't think his worst fear is employment. And he never told us what his worst fear is. And then he was given the opportunity to address that. And he was just spoke broadly and said something like, my biggest fear is that tech can create significant harm. What he didn't say, and I don't think it was addressed specifically, is Sam's concern about AI as it relates to autonomous weapons. I think that's what (laughs) scares me a little bit. He spoke at a strictly VC event in January, but he also sat down with me a few years ago in 2019. And when I asked him this question, what his biggest fears were, that was at the top of his list. I thought it was interesting that that didn't come up. Yeah, Senator Blumenthal had wonderful closing remarks and pointed out all the things we didn't get to. It was three hours. It was one of the most intense sessions of my life. It reminded me of my thesis defense, but it was much harder than my thesis defense, which was merely an hour with people like Steve Pinker and famous developmental psychologist, Susan Carey. It was a really intense meeting and we covered a bunch of ground, but there's lots of things we didn't get to. One of the things that Blumenthal mentioned was enforcement, which is really important. And another was national security and autonomous weapons and things like that. We just didn't really get there. And I would have liked the senators to push Sam even more on worst fears. I was really glad that I was able to play a role in getting him to at least say on the record in the Senate that he was worried about pretty serious harms to humanity. I would have liked to have seen more detail on that, but I'm glad that he was willing to acknowledge that there. He's obviously so compelling in person, so compelling, in fact, that he was asked, (laughs) I think, during the hearing if he would have any interest in helping service a regulatory official in some capacity. But you said something really that took me back. At some point you expressed that you felt his earnestness. and Sincerity was the word. Sincerity. Okay. He's sitting in close proximity to Sam, which I thought was really interesting. What about being there in the room with him made you feel that way? And had you not talked to him previously? I had only met him once before, very briefly. 
at an event that Tim O'Reilly organized probably a decade ago. We've had some conflict on Twitter. He also ridiculed my deep learning as hitting a wall paper and mm. also came around without really acknowledging it to the same position. He, in December, after posting a tweet saying, give me the confidence of the mediocre deep learning skeptic that had art that was modeled on my art, it was really kind of childish. He came around as basically making the same points I was about deep learning, at least as we know it now, being unreliable, not being truthful and so forth. I didn't love how that interaction went. But just sitting there, I could tell like when he was trying to be evasive and when he was being really candid, he really does see both the promise of a positive outcome and the risk of a negative outcome. Like I think everybody else in that room did. Yeah. And it came through to me that he was being genuine about that. No, he's been very explicit for a long time, so much so that I said people accuse you of fear-mongering back in 2019. And then, of course, fast forward, and I understood what he'd been talking about. But even in January, he said at the event that the best case for AI is so great that you sound like a crazy person to even talk about it. And he said the worst case is that it's, quote, lights out for everybody. So he wasn't holding back any punches. Yeah, well, he was actually a little bit more unguarded with you than he was in the room, but it's the same person was in the room with you as was on the Senate stage as a way to put it. He didn't come with the kind of corporate game I've seen where, you know, you don't really get any answers. Right, right. I'm sure the lawmakers seem to think it was really refreshing. Can I ask, it's a corny question, but had you ever been in a situation like that before? I'm just wondering what it felt like sitting before the Senate Judiciary Committee. I grew up in Baltimore, not far away from DC. And I've been to DC many times, but I walked by the Capitol the night before. It's very well lit from a photographic perspective. And I was blown away by all of the history in the Capitol and what we were trying to do this week and in the coming months. I was really profoundly moved by it. And I was really profoundly moved to be in that room. It's a little bit smaller than on television, I suppose, but it felt like everybody was there to try to do the best they could for the US, for humanity. Everybody knew the weight of the moment. And by all accounts, the senators brought their best game. Sam brought his best game. I brought mine. We knew that we were there for a reason and we gave it our best shot. Do you have any insight into when there will be another hearing? Because obviously, as you said, it's soon. Point. Soon. I can't tell you exactly, but there's going to be several of them. This was just the first. And do you know if you'll be included in the next one? No idea. A lot of people liked what they heard from me. We were very happy about it. So I wouldn't be shocked if I was invited mm-hmm. back, but there's all kinds of things involved and there would probably be different people convening committees. And so I, I have no idea. I do know that I now have a voice and that I have a lot of people who are listening to me and are very happy to talk to me. So I came away with, with much more influence, I suppose, than, than I had walking in because people were very pleased with, with my testimony. Whether I come back in a formal way, I don't know. Right. You're talking about Jan Lacuna. I did want to ask if there was much talk about open source versus otherwise. On Hardly came up. It's obviously a really complicated and interesting question. I saw in the Times today that Kate Metz did an interview with Jan on it. It's really complicated. And it's really not clear what the right answer is. You want people to do independent science. Maybe you want to have some kind of licensing around things that are going to be deployed at very large scale or that carry particular risks, which we talked about a little bit, not specifically around the open source, but just in general. There are security risks. It's not clear that we want every bad actor to get access to arbitrarily powerful tools. So there are arguments for and there are arguments against. Probably the right answer is going to include allowing a fair degree of open source, but also having some limitations, what can be done and how it can be deployed. 
So you don't have any immediate thoughts on meta strategy right now, letting its large language model out into the world for people to tinker with. I don't think it's great that Llama is out there, to be honest, mm-hmm. just in terms of like misinformation and so forth. I think that was a little bit careless. That literally is one of the genies that is now out of the bottle. There are more genies that we might want to protect more carefully. And without slamming meta too hard, I think it raises the question. That one was modestly harmful. And the next one might be really harmful. There was no legal infrastructure in place that didn't insult anybody about what they were doing, as far as I know. Maybe they did. But the decision process on that, or let's say on Bing, is basically just a company decides we're going to do this. And some of the things that companies might decide might carry harm, either these ones or future ones, whether it's in the near future or the long term. Nobody can give me an argument that says that no AI ever is going to be harmful. I would Mm -hmm. not believe such an argument. And so we're going to get to the place, if we haven't already, of harmful AI being released by companies. I think governments and scientists should increasingly have some role in deciding what goes out there. I advocated for something like an FDA, not literally the FDA, but something like the FDA, for AI, where if you want to do widespread deployment, first you do a trial, you talk about the cost benefits, you do another trial. And eventually, if we're confident that the benefits outweigh the risk, then you can release at large scale. And right now, any company at any time can decide to deploy something to 100 million customers and have that done without any kind of government supervision or scientific supervision. They can consult outside scientists, but they can ignore what those scientists say. And they can do the same thing with a model of arbitrary size. They can say, we'll give it to scientists to try out, but we won't really try that hard to control access. And we probably need to think all that stuff through. I guess the key point is, as you said, if we haven't already, if it's not already too late. Well, I think it's probably already too late on some dimensions and not others. So I think the large language models that are out there are going to be used for misinformation. And we have to now counter that misinformation with policy and new tools and so forth. There could be other things that are even more harmful that aren't out yet. I don't think we should be fatalist and say, because we lost one horse from the barn that we might Mm. as well just open the whole thing up. There's not an easy answer, I guess, because again, on the one hand, you've got Meta releasing its underlying computer code into the wild. On the other hand, you were saying on Tuesday that we need more transparency into what goes into these systems, because otherwise you can't really create a good benchmark. OpenAI has not offered a lot of transparency, and it says it's because it's concerned about safety and it doesn't want its code being copied and reused in nefarious ways. So when lawmakers ask you, or if they were to ask you theoretically, you know, open source versus otherwise, you wouldn't have a strong opinion on that quite yet. Well, I would just separate a couple of things there. One is, is any given company going to open source its code or not? I don't think we can ever require a company to fully open source its code. There are IP reasons not to want to do that. But the second question is, if you're going to deploy something at wide scale, how much auditing from external agencies might be required and at what point? On OpenAI's webpage, I believe, they say we could foresee a time in which we might want to get external auditors to look at things before we release them. But they didn't feel that they had reached that with GPT-4, and they didn't consult anybody with that. I think, actually, the public has a right to participate in the process of deciding what the criteria are, but Mm -hmm. when you would, in fact, be obliged to have those audits. Auditors should be able to look at that stuff. Doesn't mean you put out the code for everybody to look at. 
but you have to have some system where some impartial authorities can go in. It's like inspections for nuclear weapons. You have to have some kind of inspection policy that is not just run by the companies who can sort of stack the deck as they like. Who would these impartial auditors be? I guess one thing I worried about is that everyone who knows anything about how these things work is already working for a company. Well, I'm not. Yashua Bengio, I don't think he is. There are lots of scientists that are not working for these companies. It is a real worry. It does mm-hmm. keep me up at night how to get enough of those auditors and how mm-hmm. to give them incentive to do it. But there I don't know, 100,000 scientists who have some facet of expertise that's relevant here. Not all of them are working for Google or Microsoft on contract. You know, the same scientists that do peer review all the time can take those skills. They really should be paid for this work, but are perfectly capable. I'll just give one example. OpenAI showed that GPT-4 could pass some law exams and medical mm-hmm. exams and so forth. And that's potential benefit there, I suppose. But the way that they presented the data in their paper is something that would not pass, I think, most serious scientists' eyes. They would say there are actually a whole bunch of other control experiments essentially you need to do here to make sure that this isn't just a matter of data contamination in the system, parroting back stuff that's in the training set. And of course, we don't even know what's in the training set. So, you know, peer reviewers know how to go back and forth on these stuff. If I had gotten their paper as a journal reviewer, I would have made the recommendation that we call revise and resubmit which is to say, we're not saying your paper is so bad that we're rejecting it, but it's not ready yet. And here are seven recommendations. We want you to address them. And then you come back to us. You do some extra experiments. You explain what data you used here and so forth. And so the peer review process is a give and take. And I would have said, this is not enough. And I think a lot of people I know, if they were reviewing, it would have said the same. And I think a lot of people I know would be perfectly capable of doing those reviews. I was just going to ask if you spent any time thinking about or investigating GPT-4V, which is turning images into rich text, which I think is very cool. Sam had mentioned an early application of this at the hearing where they're helping the blind Mm -hmm. understand the world around them. I think given the power of these systems... It could be really incredible, but also it makes me a little bit nervous that you'd have a bio of everything at your fingertips at all times so that your privacy would be really out the window. I guess in the worst case scenario, it could become like the world's best surveillance tool. We are heading towards an episode of Black Mirror. I mean, there's just no question about that. There will be more and more detailed surveillance tools. People are going to have some version of what looked like Google Glass, where they're going to have a lot of information. There'll be some value in that to blind people, for example, and it is going to change the dynamics of society. And I mean, unless we make very strong legislation that I don't think we're likely to do, I think that kind of stuff is in our future. I would also caution that right now, I doubt that stuff is going to work anything like perfectly. And Mm. so you have to ask about safety issues and defamation issues and all kinds of stuff. I can't imagine that any version of of this software that we now know how to make is going to be free of making these occasional bizarre errors. That's just kind of inherent in the way that the software works right now. So it will often be magical and sometimes it will confabulate an entity that isn't really there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Gary, let me let you go, but going forward, what role do you imagine playing here? It's not exactly clear what's next for me. I feel like I'm an incredibly privileged role right now with a lot of people listening to me, and I'm trying to leverage that role for the greatest benefit. I'm not getting paid for this. I made enough money for my first company that I don't immediately need to be paid. 
I'm doing this because I think it's our future. Somebody asked Sam this question. My answer is the same as his. He says, I'm not getting paid. I'm doing it because it's the most interesting thing in the world. I'm also not getting paid for this. And I also think it's the most interesting thing in the world. I would like to see us really move towards a global AI agency. How much teeth that has, I don't know. There's a lot of open questions, but I'm trying to learn something about policy. I'm kind of coming from the outside. I'm very blessed that so many people in that world are giving me their time very freely. And so I'm trying to synthesize the policy ideas that are coming at me and trying to make recommendations as best I can, realizing that I am not a policy person. There are serious limits to what I can do. But people have been incredibly generous to me, and I'm trying to pay it back. Any interest in becoming involved in an AI agency, or do you think that that's outside of the realm of your expertise? For me personally, yeah, no, I'm, I'm interested. I think that whatever we build should be global and neutral, presumably nonprofit. And I think that I have a good neutral voice here that I like to share with the world and try to get us to a good place. Yeah, that's great. Well, Gary, thank you again. I really appreciate it. I know it's, well, I guess it's earlier for me than it is for you, but I still, I know that you're very busy. I have packed wall to wall with discussing this with so many people, so many wonderful people. All right. Well, good luck getting through the rest of this week. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everybody, and special thanks to Mercury. Please visit them at mercury.com. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here next week.